we had to put an IV in and I had been an EMT and I was ready for a fight and I got no fight, no fight at all, no wiggles, no squirms. And I literally turned, I said, I put in the IV, but we need, this kid needs to go to head CT like yesterday, but he also did not fight the CT. Hey there, I've got some exciting news to share and I can't wait to tell you about it. So if you're multitasking, come back to me because this is something you won't want to miss. You may already be familiar with my one hour rapid response and rescue course, a quick dive into approaching critical patients. I'm thrilled to receive such positive feedback from nurses who found it valuable, but I'm not stopping there. I've been hard at work developing a more comprehensive, in-depth course. However, the more I work on it, the more I realize that I wanna offer more than just another course to purchase. Reflecting on my years as an educator, what I truly cherish is the opportunity to interact with nurses in real time breaking down complex concepts, mentoring, inspiring, coaching, and supporting nurses as they navigate the challenges of our profession. Teaching and empowering nurses is close to my heart. Over my 20 years in the field, I've amassed a wealth of clinical knowledge that I'm committed to sharing with nurses. But there's more to being a great nurse than just understanding pathophysiology. Through trial and error myself, I've gained other valuable skills related to leadership, advocacy, resilience, which I believe can be beneficial to all nurses. So here's the plan for 2024. I wanna create a community of dedicated nurses who invest in themselves so that they can deliver exceptional patient care. This won't be just me recording myself for a podcast. I wanna teach live, address your questions and provide a platform for nurses to support one another. I'm calling it Rapid Response Academy, the heart and science of caring for the sick. Members will enjoy weekly live lessons, a community forum for questions, and personal interaction with me to better understand your needs and support you on your journey. This is uncharted territory, and I'm excited to explore it together. I'll be soft launching on December 1st to get to know the initial members. So those who sign up before December will receive a 25% discount and play a pivotal role in shaping the community from the ground up. The sign-up list opens on Friday, November 24th. If you're excited about more in-depth teaching, access to a supportive community of like-minded nurses, and the chance to be a part of our founding group, I'd love to have you on board. If you wanna learn more about what I'm building, I put a link in the show notes for you. Now, let's get back to today's episode. T did not move in the CT. The oh my goodness, was already firing before we went to CT. And after it got worse, this child started to get more drowsy. And then we started to see like the telltale signs of basilar skull fractures. Hey there. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. 
it's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. All right. Welcome back to the Rep Response Room Podcast. Today, I have an awesome guest to share with you. Casey is currently an assistant nurse manager in a mixed ICU. Casey, we're going to dive into a really interesting case of a patient who presented to your ER looking pretty stable, but turned out to have a pretty serious injury. But before we dive into the case, I would love to take a minute for you to share your nursing journey with my audience. Specifically, can we just start with your alphabet soup of a title? Yes. So thank you. So I have a wonderful alphabet soup. So <laughs> I started as a nurse in 2015. Now it's like becoming so long ago that I can't remember. I started in an actual like med search observation tele-unit. And then my unit closed when I was in undergrad. And so my options were the IC or the ED. And I picked the emergency department then and worked in the emergency department for a couple years, started working in the ICU, started doing critical care ground transport, and absolutely like loved all of those things. And then in 2021, in the middle of the second wave of the pandemic, I decided it would be a great idea to start getting certified. And so... Because you had nothing else going on in your life right now. It wasn't like you were busy working extra nothing. shifts at the hospital yeah. or anything. <laughs> nothing like that. So I set out the goal to just be certified in the CTRN, which is a certified transport registered nurse. And that turned into me taking, I just want to do that in CCRN. So, and that's the critical care registered nurse. And it turned into me taking the CTRN. And then I took the CTRN. And then I took certified emergency nurse, trauma registered nurse, and flight registered nurse all in April of that same year. And then I was like, okay, so the only one that's left for the like high five club is the pediatric emergency nurse. And after I became an EMPC instructor, I was like, okay, let's do that. So after I passed the class and became an instructor, I took the CPE and the pediatric emergency nurse and passed that and became the 85th nurse ever to have all five of the BCEN certs. <laughs> That's awesome. And then I was like, okay, well, like I have all these ER certs and I don't have any critical care certifications. So I went on and did my cardiac medicine certification. And then I took some time and after people called me a one-trick pony, like she can't do this again. She too <laughs> took them all. Then this year I obtained my eighth nursing certification, which is the certified registered neuroscience nurse. Your so, eighth certification, Casey. That yes, is so too much. That is so badass. <laughs> so awesome. Okay, so I saw a picture of you online, and you had like a like your name and your all your letter, your alphabet suit behind, and it's like a whole freaking paragraph on your it's <laughs> your, so your jacket. Like the place that does the embroidery for my work jackets, they like make fun of me because we're <laughs> on three lines right now, and it's like funny because it's like I don't wear I wear the jacket because it's like. For the moments that I need to like stunt on people and be like, so right. <laughs> here's critical care, Casey. Hello. Yeah. Hello here. <laughs> it's like the one time that people are like trying to test me and I'm like, no, I have certs. But the rest of the time they're just yeah, covered. I have proven myself. Yeah. <laughs> 
I love it. Okay. So if like your email signature, can you just list them all out? Prepare yourself, everyone. Okay. So soon to be, so in April next year, it'll become MSN. But right now, my email signature is BSN, RN, CCRN with CMC connected because it's a subspecialty. CFRN, CTRN, CEN, TCRN, CPEN, CNRN, and then NRP because I'm a nationally registered paramedic. Oh my gosh. It's so long. Casey, I love it so much. And so I love long. that you can find the humor in it. <laughs> yeah. So long. I, it's ridiculous. You don't take yourself too seriously. No. Not at all. And I think that's like so funny. The thought of like how ridiculous it is, is like, but great. Like people see my email, they're like, this girl. So (laughs) now I just like get a kick out of it. It's hysterical. To finish my MSM program, I actually have to take two more certification tests. And I was like, if I get them, I'm not listing them in my email unless it's something educational. The embroidery shop's going to be like, we're done. We're cutting you off. We're done. (laughs) Three lines max. Yes. I love it. I love it so much. I mean, you know, everyone has their hobbies and vices and yours just happens to be professional development. You know, there's there's worse things you can be into. I love it. So it's a question. Do you feel like having all these certs has made you a better nurse? I do. Actually, it's so weird. It's like I can easily make fun of like the certification and I am truly am like an advocate of like get certified in only the specialties you work in. So like every certification I have, I've worked in that area. And I think that people should be putting time into their certifications. Like you shouldn't just get random certs. But I will say that I learned so much while I was like studying for certification because there's always like you have the background knowledge, but it's also weird because you don't like, I live in Maryland. We don't ever see snakes. Like, Like we see, we don't see like snakes that are on like the CEN, like, and just like somebody who may be in another area of the world, well, really the world, but another area in the United States, they may not see like opiate addiction like we do in Baltimore. So it's kind of like an interesting like give and take. And you actually like learn a lot about how nurses everywhere do like emergency nursing and not just in your little like niche in your like one spot that you work in. So it was kind of interesting to learn and really interesting to find out that some of the things that like I had learned through the years were not the right thing. Yeah, that's definitely eye-opening when you're like, I've done this my whole career. This is how all the doctors that I work with do it. You're like, oh, this isn't evidence-based? Yeah. And then you're like, oh. Or do you think like you've learned like, oh, this is a late sign. This is an early sign. And then when you start like actually like pad to paper, like taking the time to like read up on things and study, you're finding that it's not. But I found that I was going outside of that and looking at like up to date and stat pearls and lip and cut and all these other resources like to find information to fill any gaps that I had in my knowledge. Yeah. And you know, it takes years to become an expert to be able to actually expose yourself to all the different random things that you might see as an ER nurse, as a flight nurse, as an IC nurse. I mean, it takes years to get that. But when you're studying for these types of exams, when you study for eight of them, you are accelerating that process of exposing yourself to all the things real fast because you have to know them all to pass the test. So, I mean, smart move on your part. You definitely lost yourself into being an expert much faster than the average there's, I love that you did it in 2021 of all years. All right. So let's talk about this case. 
So can you just set the stage? Like, where were you working? How did the patient present? What made your nursing intuition say, "Mm, something's going on besides what I see on the surface level here? Take it away. So this happened when I was probably in my first, like in my first year in the ER. I'd been a floor nurse for a year and I was working down the ER. I had just come off of orientation maybe like four months before this. And we had a kid come in. I worked fast track in our emergency department. So like your low priority people, like a lot of kids, like stuffy noses and like adults with fractured things who just need to be set and they go. And we had this kid that came in with their mom and their older sibling for like, they fell down a flight of steps. And the mom was like, oh, they whack their head pretty good on the steps, but the kid was like playing. They look fine. But something about it, like, okay, the story is like, you know, whatever. But my preceptor taught me like everything is the worst thing ever until it's not. So even the people like always look for the things that are like the worst thing first. And if it's not, it's great. But low priority patients can sometimes be the sickest person they eating. And I learned that that day. Yeah, I mean... That is a great wisdom for your preceptor. It's always the worst case scenario until proven otherwise. Yes. (laughs) All right. So the kid, how did they look whenever you looked at them? So when they first came in, they were playing like appropriately and they looked pretty good. They had um, what rose my suspicion right away was like this kid had a knot on his head. I was still new as a nurse. So I was like, okay, I was like, I don't know if this is normal or not, like, I don't know anything yet, but like from, I was a preschool teacher before nursing school. So I was like, okay, I've seen kids fall down, go boom all the time. And like this kid's completely normal acting, but like, why do they have a knot on their head? So like, that made me think like, is this fall worse than like, they're downplaying this fall, but like, was it actually worse? And they're just like downplaying because it didn't seem like it was that bad when it happened. Gotcha. All right. So the kid's playing. They're making eye contact. How old is the child just approximately? I think 36 months because they were able to walk and like a little bit of walking and like their parents were like walking them up the steps. So they weren't like older than three, but they were in like that one and a half to like two and a half range. Okay. Gotcha. All right. So the kids make eye contact, big old goose egg on their head. All right. So what did you do with this spidey says that you had? So I talked to our provider and our provider was very much like, oh, you know, it's not a big deal. Kids fall. But at that time, like when I had said something when they first came in, I was like, hey, do you see that like knot on their head? And it was like, oh, you know, that happens. That happens. So he's out there seeing other people. And about like 35, 40 minutes later, I'm like, this kid is like playing less. They weren't as interested in playing with their siblings as they were when they first came in. He was definitely like not as interactive with, like, me when I came in the room. Like, you know, think of, like, the happiest baby you've ever seen that's, like, happy to see anybody. And that's kind of, like, disinterested when people are coming in the room. So a little altermental status. All right. What followed after that? So after that, I had then elevated those concerns back to our provider who was still seeing other people. And I said, look, I think, I was like, I know that I'm new. I know that I don't know everything yet. But I was like, I feel like this kid's fall was worse than we thought. 
And I know that the story is just fell down a flight of steps. But then I started thinking, let me ask more about where the steps were. They were outside when he fell and he fell down four to five concrete steps on their front porch. And they're Baltimore City steps. So like a normal step is like one is is essentially like your normal inside step is like two outside in the city, in Baltimore City. So knowing that, I was like, that kind of changes like what I was originally thinking. And even the provider, he was like, oh, that's a significant fall for this like little person, this child. So with that, I started asking more questions. And it was really challenging because you have a kid that's sitting there that can't tell you how they feel because they're so young. But I started asking the mom, I was like, well, you saw it happen. Like, how did they land? Where did they land? What did they look like? What did he look like when he got up? Did he cry? Did he not? And I started like really relying on like my nursing assessment to kind of guide what the next like things I was going to go to the provider with. So when I went with the steps and with the change in like attention levels, then it was very clear that like maybe this this kid was worse off than we thought. And then we had to put an IV in and I had been an EMT and, and I was ready for a fight. And I got no fight, no fight at all. No wiggles, no squirms, no like, eh, I don't like it. And I literally turned, I said, I put in the IV, but we need, this kid needs to go to head CT like yesterday. Like if there's not a stroke back there or somebody who's like about to die, like we need to clear off everybody because this kid like needs to go. Yeah. I just want to pause and accentuate that because that's really important. For adult patients, we're like, yay, they're such a nice patient. So compliant. Yeah. We do not want to see super compliant three-year-olds like they're supposed to fight back and when they don't your spidey senses should be like alarm 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 emergency right that's super super concerning so great point and even for me being like a baby nurse and like at the time like it's so weird being able to like retrospectively think of it now but at the time I was like this is so bad like my eyes were wide and like I was like this is so bad like and I was ready like if my provider wasn't going to move on that. I was ready to escalate to like the charge nurse and talk to like the other attending on the adult side. And I was like, I, somebody's going to have to see this baby because I don't, I was like, I can't yet articulate what I think is wrong, but something is wrong with this kid. Right, right. It's like, all I got is a goose egg, guys, but my gut says it's more than just that. Good. All right. So you push for the CT. They got the CT. And what did it show? The CT showed a basilar skull fracture, but he also did not fight the CT, did not move in the CT. And that was, again, I was like, the, oh my goodness, was already firing before we went to CT. And after it got worse, this child started to get more drowsy. And then we started to see like the telltale signs of basilar skull fractures. All right. So that's perfect lead in. What are the telltale signs of basilar skull fracture? It's battles and raccoon sign. So raccoons is the ecchymosis around the eyes. Battle sign is the bruising on the mastoid process, which is like the back of the head where usually around the spot where the injury occurred, they're not super clinically reliable. Like the worse the head trauma, the faster they show. But with this child, it was probably, this was by the time the CT read came back and we started to see B signs and symptoms, I think maybe four or five hours had passed. So, you know, usually like basilar skull fractures, it's a fast, quick, like arterial bleed. But for this child, it was just because babies have large heads. And I know that they were young enough that their 
sutures were not all the way fused yet because that's the difference in like the the how this was not so devastating to begin with and we missed signs and symptoms again all things i learned after the fact not in it <laughs> but <laughs> you will never helpful. forget them now right a great case study for what you're learning in the the classroom setting so Casey, before we go a little bit deeper into the symptoms, can you just back us up and describe what is a basilar skull fracture? Like what's happening inside the skull? And then from that, what, what are all the possible symptoms we can anticipate or look for if a patient has sustained a basilar skull fracture? So a basilar skull fracture is any type of break to the base of the skull, usually it's like a fractured bone um, in the skull. Usually that's the occipital bone. It can be any of them, but the most common like area is the occipital bone. And with that, it causes like varying on where it's located with the signs and symptoms. But the most common signs and symptoms early are the change in mental status. You have cranial nerve damage, so a lot of issues with balance. It, that is hard to see in pediatric patients because they already, if they are walking, they're wobbly. <laughs> they are already wobbly. They are weevil right. wobbles that sometimes fall down. And then also battle sign, which is the ecchymosis towards the base of the skull, and raccoon eyes, which is from the ecchymosis around the orbitals of the eyes. And usually, if you have a frontal bone, if you have a frontal bone break, you can also do things like the frontal bone and the sphenoid bone, which are the front of your head and like the middle of the skull that also can distort your sense of smell, which is cranial nerve one. So it's kind of like a lot of the neuro symptoms, the most common are the change in mental status. So lethargic seizures are common, balance issues like gait abnormality, and then your later signs are battle sign, raccoon eyes. And sometimes you get halo sign, which is where there have drainage of CSF fluid because of the break and the pressure that the break puts on the brain. You either have drainage of CSF from your nose or from your ears. You don't put anything in their ears to stop the CSF from leaking or their nose. But if you were to put a tissue to it, then you would see a ring of blood on the inside and the CSF on the outside. You can also test it. You can do a glucose test to determine if it's CSF or just like drainage. Yeah, I've seen times when we see like a little drainage on the pillowcase. And so I'm like stay out of the pillowcase pattern, like it's like artwork or something like, okay, is there, is there halo sign there? And halo sign, just to be clear, is whenever there's concentric rings of like the ring of blood and the ring of CSF, they like kind of separate out once they hit a tissue or a pillowcase or whatever that you're that you're using to test it on. It's almost like a bullseye like yeah. appearance when you do see it. It's you kind of see it and you're like, okay, that's Halo sign. So if you don't know what we're talking about, just Google it, guys. I'm sure there's other pictures on the internet of what Halo sign is. All right. So otorrhea, rhinorrhea, any other symptoms that we should be on the lookout for if someone has sustained a head injury? Um, I think the big one is change in mental status. That's like the really the big thing. That's one of the first signs and symptoms. So you know, if you're thinking about kids, like play is their work. So they go from play to not playing, not interacting. And I think it's important to note, like, the differences based on age. So, like, if you have a baby, like an infant, a neonate that has head trauma, 
if they have altered mental status, it's not going to be the same as an adult. So they're usually not interested in what's going around in the surroundings. So if they were tracking people in the room before, like their little eyes were going everywhere, they look at you when you come in the room. When you're doing things with them, they're following you around the room. Like altered mental status in them is that they stop doing those things. They're not tracking you anymore. An older kid, like preschool age child, would be more likely to not be interested in play anymore and want to do things like school age and preschoolers usually regress and they'll want to sit with their parents and, you know, they start to regress into that. They want to lay on them or be like in a lap versus like when they're, you know, reimbuctions are running around the hallway and you have to like tell them to slow down, like they're sick, stop. And an adolescent would present more like an adult, but it's things like if you ask them what they did at school or what grade they're in, what classes they're taking, they may not be able to answer those things. You know, severe head injury, they wouldn't know who their parents are. But a lot of times for adolescents, it's really subtle and they're just confused on like either what happened that day or they are sometimes confused about if you ask them like what their life schedule is. Like if you ask them who their best friend is, they have to think about that for a long period of time versus just being able to rifle it off. Good. That's good tips. Thank you, Casey. So a lot of basic school fractures are associated with child abuse. Are there any defining characteristics or things about the history that might point a healthcare provider to investigate a little bit further into the the possibility of child abuse being the source? Yeah, especially with um, younger children, you might see like this the typical signs of abuse. So bruises in various stages of healing, a lot of emergency department visits, the story doesn't match. So for this case too, when you look at the injury pattern and like the atypical presentation kind of went with what they said happened, they brought the child in right away. There were no other signs of abuse. There weren't bruises in various stages of healing. Child well-fed and well-dressed is another one. That can be a sign of neglect too. So you remember, you know, just for knowing like when these people, when patients come into the emergency department, that neglect is a form of like abuse, of child abuse. Looking at the older children, they didn't have any signs of like bruises in various stages of healing. And it's usually the the big things are like the story doesn't match what happened. They have other like bruises, slips, trips, falls, a lot of other emergency department visits. Like kids are clumsy, but they're not like clumsy to the point that they're going to the ER multiple times. You know, broken fingers, broken toes, things that they're coming to the emergency department for. Super athletic kids might come to the ED for a sprained knee or something. But if they're not involved in any activities, then that would be kind of like a sign as well, could be a sign. For this little one, you got the diagnosis of the major skull fracture. Then what do you do with this kiddo? So for this child, it's like the diagnosis was made. And in the back of my mind, I started thinking about that, but I had never seen a basal skull fracture in a pediatric patient. All of a sudden, like the sweet baby nurse on the unit had the sickest patient in the emergency department. They got started on 3% saline and that the treatment was going to be decreasing intracranial pressure and really just keeping this kid stable, making sure that you're watching for like airway changes and things and being proactive and not reactive to them, any changes. So your assessment is like even tighter than it was when you first like saw this child. So 
just coordinating everybody together. The child went to our regional, like, pediatric trauma center. So if you could summarize the nurse's priorities in caring for someone who has either potentially or a diagnosed basal skull fracture, what's the nurse's priorities for that patient population? So the priority is to decrease intracranial pressure and like the quick treatment and identification of a basal skull fracture is like key. So using your assessment to get the head CT, but also to make sure that we're keeping decreasing intracranial pressure, even if you don't have a monitor to monitor ICP. A lot of it is anticipation and, you know, getting them set for surgery, making sure that you're watching their vital signs. You can keep the room dark, decrease the sound. We actually moved this child to a room with the door closed um, so that it wasn't like all the loudness and chaos that just inherently is the emergency department. Keeping a calm environment, making sure that the parents too have resources, making sure that, that you're still checking and calculating safe doses so you're like advocating for your patient that way and making sure that they're not getting too much medication or not enough for what for what they need it for. But especially if you work in a mixed unit, because it is not all the time that people have pediatric patients. That's good. Thank you, Casey. So I feel like this case is just such a good example of how important it is to trust that nursing intuition. Like you were still young young in the sense of like in your career, you didn't have all like the data points to be able to clearly like point towards and say, they have this, they have this, they have this. We should be concerned. Just your gut said, this is not right. So trust intuition. And then you spoke up and advocated and got the patient what they needed. I mean, props to you, my friend. Strong work here for this kiddo. And for everyone that's listening, if you have pediatric patients and they're not fighting you, you should let somebody know. That, that is concerning. They, they shouldn't be not excited about getting an IV, not excited about any intervention that's not, you know, provided by their parents. Like, they should be fighting. Um, so yeah, great, great, Casey. Thank you for sharing that. Are there any other closing thoughts or takeaways that you would want a nurse to glean from this scenario? Really, it's just the trust your gut. And like, even if other people are telling you that, oh, it's not a concern right now, if you still feel that, push that. Because for me, this was the first time that I pushed that. And it continued in my career. It's continued now. And now that I have nine years of experience, people, I say things and people trust that I know what I'm doing. But when I was new, I found myself having to advocate for my gut. It's just as much as the patient. And even if you don't have any data, I will tell you that if you tell a physician ever and I just have a bad feeling, even as a new nurse, even if you're not right, you'll be really surprised to find how many doctors, even when you're new, if your gut is telling you something's off and you could, the smallest thing could be the reason. But if you tell somebody like, this is my gut feeling, they'll say, okay, let's go with the gut then. And even as a new grad, your gut is your intuition, but that's also like your clinical decision-making and you just don't know that yet when you're like new because you you kind of you think a mile a minute in your head and you don't have you don't have all the pieces together. But that's your clinical judgment, like speaking to you in the form of like trusting your gut and your intuition. So just go with it and continue to like culture that in your career. Yes. It's not indigestion. <laughs> Amen, Casey. I love it. 
Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Before I let you go, I wanted the people who listen to my podcast to know where they could find you if they wanted to learn more about Casey or to follow you on Instagram or how can people find you? So the best way is through Instagram. It's Critical Care Casey. I'm also on LinkedIn, but like for tips in the profession. But if you want to do like study questions with me or you have questions that you want like questions about, you want more study tips or things, or you're looking to like meet and chat. Also, if you're looking for a topic that you want covered, I just became one of the section editors for the Journal of Emergency Medicine for the Emerging Professionals Corner. So, yes. So if you have any suggestions for things we should cover or, you know, you're looking for that, just know that we've heard you and it is coming. Awesome. Casey, thank you so much for being on my podcast. It was a pleasure unpacking this case with you, learning about your nursing career. I'm excited to share this podcast with my with my listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport. So trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as The Rapid Response RN. 